Welcome back to Finest Hours. We're happy to be back and we have an awesome story for you today. But first, usual intros. I'm Braden Cromar. I'm joined by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our, uh, I don't really have an adjective for you, Skylar. What do you beautiful. want to be today? Our beautiful executive producer, Skylar Williams. Howdy. It's good to see your lovely faces again, especially yours, Skylar. <laughs> I appreciate it. You sure look like you could use a haircut. I'm growing it out. And the shave. Skyler's got a mustache. I I shaved it for the mustache. <laughs> oh, um, Skyler, you have big news for us. Are you expecting? I do. I, I am no. expecting. Little do you know. <laughs> bigger, bigger news. Skyler, you just ran your first marathon last I, weekend. I did. I, I pulled the Catherine. How did your first marathon go? It went pretty well. I, uh... Honestly, just wanted to uh, break four hours, and I ran three hours and 43 minutes. Is that faster or slower than Catherine Switzer's first marathon? So it's it's faster than her first one. She ran 420. Um, interesting number choice. <laughs> it is interesting, but she nice. ended up running like three, uh, what was it, like th- three something Low threes was like at her fastest times. Nice. Well, guess you'll I'm have glad, to run another one. Yes. I'm glad you're still alive because I had my concerns. And <laughs> the reason why that's relevant today is because today we are talking about another runner. Lopepe or Lopez Lamong for all those people that don't know who Lo- Lopepe is. <laughs> this... Not everybody speaks booyah. <laughs> This is an awesome, awesome story. And ever since we've launched this podcast, I have been waiting to do this one because this is one of my favorite stories. It was really good studying for this, like studying or just listening to a book (laughs) is basically what I did, but it was really interesting. Our story today takes place in Sudan during the Second Sudanese Civil War. The Sunni Civil War was a deadly conflict that lasted 22 years and claimed over 2 million lives, making it one of the most deadly conflicts since World War II. The desperation to quickly train troops led both the North and South to recruit child soldiers. And today's story is about one of those child soldiers. So Lopez, or Lopepe Lamang, as he was born, was at church one Sunday with his family at age six when rebel soldiers pulled up to the church and started taking snatching. children. They were child snatchers. They were snatching them up. So they, they pull up to the church with assault rifles and are taking all the children from the church. Which is scarier, rebel soldiers snatching children or the guy off of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? That's exactly what I was thinking of him rolling up, like straight nightmares. As soon as you said snatch, that's where my mind went. I was like, oh man, I don't know what's scary here. But in all seriousness, like this was a very extreme situation. Like children are being torn from their mother's arms and and being thrown into a truck. So yeah, it was really tough. A lot of the parents tried to save their children. 
And then the people with assault rifles finally had enough and said, hey, back off or we will open fire. And so the choices were not good. Well, I, he, uh, his mom took him to the ground and was kind of covering him up, trying to protect him um, when a soldier found him and then grabbed him and was tore him right out of her arms. And so you could just imagine the fear of, of a six-year-old with a stranger coming up and just snatching you from your mom. So you go from protected arms to unprotected arms. Yeah, so they take the boys and the girls, they throw them in the back of, a, of two separate trucks, one for the boys, one for the girls, and they're packed in there and they take off down the road and they're locked up in the back of this truck, which is super hot in the African summer heat and dust kicking up and no one's able to breathe. And they travel like this for several hours and they are eventually brought to a prison camp. I think one of the cool things about the truck ride was Lopez talked about how some people ended up lying down. He doesn't know if they fell asleep or passed out, but he refused to do that because he was dressed in his Sunday best and he didn't want his mom had dressed him in his Sunday best and he didn't want to ruin that. That's true. I did like that. <laughs> Worried about his clothes and he was just taken. I think that just kind of shows what kind of a determined personality that uh, he was going to develop and we were going to see. Yeah, he didn't really know what was happening and he assumed that he would be able to go back home um, at some point. It is uh, closed when he returned to church. I think we should note that he did have two brothers and a sister that hadn't made it to church yet because his older brother, who was only eight years old, told his parents that he was going to take his other two siblings to a later service. And so luckily they were saved and still sad that he was taken, but I mean, blessings, I guess you could say. (laughs) Yeah. Lopez was happy that his other siblings were not taken. So they were taken to this prison camp and locked up in a small hut. And Hayden, why don't you talk to us about the living conditions in the hut? Well, originally he got shoved into the hut and he said that it was like the size of just a small living room of what you could kind of compare it to. And there were 80 people in there just shoved in there. And so barely enough room to have your own space, like standing. They heard the people that had taken them speaking outside of the hut, talking about breaking them. Many of them were already being broken. Some were passing away. Uh, He said that, it was pretty typical each morning to have the soldiers come in and remove several bodies. Eventually there were so many people dying that they said, look, we've got to, they overheard the soldiers say that they needed to start training them or else they were going to lose them all. And then that's just, they said was pointless. And so eventually some of the bigger people were being taken out and trained while the smaller people, including Lopez, he was only six had to stay inside the hut all day and they were not allowed out for the bathroom. If they asked to go out and use the bathroom, it was assumed that they were trying to escape and they were beaten. Yeah, he's in the camp for about three weeks, and some of the boys were not making it, and they had begun to pass away in the night, and their population in the hut was dwindling because the older boys were getting recruited, and the younger boys were starting to die off. 
there were three particular older boys that Lopez became friends with. They were taking where they were taken from the same little town that he was from. And they were like, oh, you're Lopepe. And he was like, yeah, I have no idea who you guys are. But they told him that since they were from the same town, they were family and that if they would, he would stick with them, that he would be safe and that he would return to his mother. He calls them his angels. And later we'll, we'll kind of find out why he calls them that. But they just told him, stick with us and you'll make it and we'll, you'll be safe. And so as they take the older boys out to train, a couple of weeks pass by and Lopez says that you could see the demeanor in the other boys start to change where they were excited to go out to train, to shoot the guns and do all that stuff. But he said that the three boys that he was with, his angels never were like that. They continued to always think about, okay, how are we going to escape? How are we going to help Lopepe survive? So one night they do plan an escape and the three angels, as he referred to them, tell him that he's going to see his mom again. And they, so it's late at night and the boys open the door and Lopez noticed that the door would usually squeak when it was opened, but on this night it did not squeak. And so they exit the hut and they are sneaking past the guards. And one guard lights up his cigarette and Lopez sees that he's only about 15 feet away from him. And so one of the boys mouths to him to stay down and keep quiet. And they continue to move towards the end of the camp and they escape through a small hole in the fence and then they just start taking off and running. And it's three days that they run through the summer heat in Africa to escape the prison camp. Lopez was himself was known as a, a fast runner. Um, and that's where his name Lopepe comes from, meaning fast. As he's running for those three days, he's reminded of the times where he would ask his dad to help on the farm and his dad would say no because he wasn't big enough or strong enough to help. And so instead of staying home with his mom, he would run and beat his dad to the farm and then help with the smaller chores. And he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm really not that strong to to help. But he was fast and he would use his determination to to get places. And so as he's running for those three days, that's kind of one of the memories that keeps popping up into his head and helps him. And this is Africa. So there are tons of predators in the area. I mean, talking about little kids running in the desert by themselves and there are animals like hyenas and lions that are in the area. So after three days of running day and night, the boys are exhausted and they eventually stumble across soldiers and the soldiers spot them and they try to run, but they're too exhausted. And when the soldiers catch up to them, they see that these aren't rebel soldiers, but rather these are Kenyan soldiers. And the Kenyan soldiers take care of them. They give them food and water to drink and bandage them up. And the boys are taken to a refugee camp in Kenya called the Kukuma Refugee Camp. Kakuma was not a huge upgrade from his living standards before. Kakuma was actually run by the United Nations, which makes it sound like, oh, he's in a good situation. 
but really he was now getting about a meal a day. Luckily, there was less sand and debris in his food, but it was not much of an upgrade. And it really is incredible the amount of energy some of these people still had, even on minimal calories. People in the camp really, really loved soccer. And that was one of the biggest things that really kept them going. Yeah, and Lopez, you know, being one of the younger kids in the camp was really depressed. And some of the older boys were like, no, Lopez, you need to get out and do something, play soccer, go to school, because you'll, you won't make it if you do. And they pointed to another boy who was just sitting in a fetal position, rocking back and forth. And they were like, you will end up like that boy who would die a short period later. So Lopez came to the realization that, okay, I have to try and live a normal life and stay active. One of the hard things for him in order to do that was around this time, he made the assumption that his family was dead, that they had been killed in the Civil War. And later on, he says that he always had some hope that they had survived. But whenever he was asked in the future about his family, he said that they were dead and he just kept that assumption. That kept him going during his days of the Kakuma refugee camp because it was it was brutal. It wasn't much better than the, the rebel hut. Like Hayden said, they only got fed one meal a day. There became a special day on Tuesday where a garbage can would go throughout the camp. And as soon as they would hear that, they would run after it and they would throw the garbage can into this trash pile and all the boys would jump in there and they would grab half-eaten bananas, half-eaten sandwiches, literally anything that the people in the UN didn't finish and threw away, they would grab that and they would store it and eat it for later and they would share it with all the boys in their tent, which is amazing to you know be in a situation where you're you're almost dying, but they all had the type of unity where they would grab something and then they would share it with everybody. Yeah. They said that Tuesday trash day was the one day that they ate. Well, they had schooling in the camp. So the boys were able to attend classes and they would do their lessons in the dirt with a stick. And there were some boys in the camp that were sponsored by donors. And these boys would get things like papers and pencils, but Lopez wasn't a sponsored boy and he would just do his lessons in the dirt. If he ever drew a letter wrong, then he would get smacked by the teacher and the teacher would say, why did you draw it that way? And then smack him and then move on to the next person. He did learn Swahili really quickly. Yep. And he did start to learn some English as well. And one of the other things that Lopez really enjoyed doing was going to church. And as Christmas time came around, a priest gave him the name of Joseph, which from his Bible study, reminded him of Joseph of Egypt, who was sold into slavery. And something that he really wanted to do was show his devotion to to God. Um, and so there was a priest that got a group of boys and said that he was going to confirm them um, one night. And so Lopez was excited and he was really scared at the same time. And so the night comes, they gather around, the priest is going around to each boy. As he gets to Lopez, he does the rituals, and then he he renames him Joseph. And several things passes 
pass through his mind um, when he gets renamed Joseph. He thinks of Joseph, who was the father of Jesus Christ. And then he immediately goes to Joseph of Egypt, who had lots of hard times, but then eventually was, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Freed and became a king, basically. (laughs) Yeah, basically. He was freed um, and he basically given everything because of his devotion to God. Lopez was like, you know what? This is going to be me. This is going to be my story. It wasn't a coincidence. It was something that God was kind of telling Lopez, hey, you know what? You're going to have the story similar to Joseph. A lot of time passes in the prison camp. A lot of it is spent looking forward to church, battling in the trash heap for food, and playing soccer. And so one of their requirements, because everybody wanted to play soccer, was that you had to run around the perimeter of the camp before you could uh, start playing soccer. And so you think, oh, okay, cool, no big deal. Run around, run around the camp and then you can play. And that's kind of what I thought until I saw how big the camp actually was. So even saying that, oh, it's big. Oh, it's very big. It's 30 kilometers or 18 miles. And that's the warm up. <laughs> And so that's how serious this soccer culture was within, was you would run 18 miles just so that you could run some more and kick a ball after. Like, it's just crazy. Well, and you think about it, like, they go to school and then they go play soccer, but they have to run the 18 miles before that. Yeah. It's, I don't know, it's it's a two-hour thing, right? Like, more than two hours. You take three hours to run 18 miles and then you spend the rest of your day still running <laughs> for what, two or three more hours playing soccer. All on one meal per day. Crazy, crazy conditions, crazy stuff. But you see the desire that these boys had to to be happy, to push forward, even though that, they were having probably the hardest trials of their lives. And this was his life for 10 years. He spent about 10 years in the Kakuma prison camp or the, sorry, the refugee camp. He loved soccer playing it every day. You would probably grow to love the game and he loved scoring goals. He was quicker than all of the boys. He was able to score. And this made a lot of the older boys mad because he wouldn't pass it. He would just get the ball and then he'd run faster than everybody and go score. After he ran 18 miles, he came to the field one day and one of the older boys said, Lopez, you're playing goalie because you won't pass the ball. And he was pretty upset, but then he was like, you know what? I'm going to be the best goalie ever. And once again, we kind of just see his determination and his desire to be the best that he can be in the situation that he's in. Lopez really liked working hard, no matter what he was doing, whether it was playing soccer, he was going to make sure that he became really good, whether it was running, he wanted to be fast, whether it was schooling, he wanted to learn, he wanted to be smart. Work and the work ethic was something that was really important to him. And so one day while he was on his run around the camp, he actually saw a nearby farm and It was illegal for the refugees to be employed. They couldn't, according to the Kenyan laws, work within Kenya, and they couldn't be paid. But he asked the farmer if he had any work that could be done. He 
had taken care of around 200 cattle at the age of six on his father's farm. And so he shared that with the nearby farmer. And the farmer said, well, I don't really want to pay you. And Lopez said, oh, it's cool. You don't, you don't have to like promise me anything. Just let me work. And then once I'm done, you can pay me what you think it was worth. Yeah. So he helps the farmer out. Um, I think it, what was it? He was keeping his grass down or something. And the farmer paid him five shillings for doing that. And so a few months later, there starts to become a buzz around the refugee camp about the Olympics coming up. And the boys are asking Lopez, so Lopez, are you excited for the Olympics? And he's just not knowing what that is. But he's like, "Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, isn't everybody? The boy tells him, well, some of us are going to go watch these Olympics. You should come with. And so he agrees. And he, some of the boys sneak off from the refugee camp and they go to the farmer's house where Lopez was working. And the farmer demands, okay, you can come in and watch, but it'll be five shillings a piece. And you each need to, none of you can sit on the furniture because you're too dirty. And so he's like, five shillings. I don't want to pay this guy five shillings. He really held that money dear, dear to him, but not wanting to be the only one singled out. He pays his five shillings and the boys walk into the farmer's house and sit down. And on a table is a TV hooked up, a small TV hooked up to a car battery. And he's like, what? These are the Olympics. This is stupid. (laughs) And (laughs) The, the farmer turns on the TV and the black and white images spark on the screen. And what he is about to watch is Michael Johnson's 400 meter race. It's the final race of Michael Johnson's career, who is one of the most successful track athletes of all time. He watches Michael win the race and he had broken a new record. I don't remember if it was an Olympic record or a world record. But after he finished, he was draped with an American flag and they zoom up on Michael Johnson crying. And Lopez is like, wait, why is this guy crying? Like African men don't cry. And that really impacted him. So the farmer said, okay, boys, it'll be another five shillings. And Lopez, not having any more money, leaves. And he's walking back to the to the refugee camp by himself. All the other boys had some extra money, so they stayed to watch more of the Olympic Games. But he's walking back. He's like, I don't get it. This man just showed an amazing display of strength, but here he was crying. He thinks to himself, one day I'm going to run into the Olympics, and I'm going to do it in the same jersey that Michael Johnson was wearing, the initials USA across the chest. Another thing that's kind of interesting is prior to seeing those Olympic Games, he didn't know that running was a sport. I mean, running was just what you had to do in order to play soccer. Yeah, when he saw all the people in the crowd, he's like, this must be a really popular sport. Little did he know, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like poetry. More people do it than read it. <laughs> more people run than watch track and yeah, more people write it than read it and more people run than watch that's funny now Lopez was given a unique opportunity that was coming up because there was an American refugee program that was introduced and they said they were going to take 3,500 people and so that may seem like a lot but this was a massive camp with tons of people. 
and they had to write an essay in English in order to try to find, uh, in order to be accepted into that refugee program to move to the United States. And the tricky part for Lopez was that many people had experienced great hardships that were in that camp. And he felt that many people had experienced things that were even more difficult or challenging or harrowing than the positions that he was placed in. You also have to remember that Lopez doesn't know English, only knows Swahili. And like, I'm not going to let a little thing like that stop me. Yeah. And so just like all the other boys, he begins to write an essay and he says that it becomes like a group effort because all the boys want to go to America. They want all of their brothers to go to America as well. And so he starts to write out his story. He begins with how he was taken at the age of six from his mother's arms, how he had to escape the prison camp and run for days and days, and then how he was led to the situation that he was in now. And he wrote that in Swahili, and then he goes to his tent, and he says, guys, I need help to translate this to English. As they translate it to English, it wasn't translated the very best. Um, you know, he says, I can't remember how it goes, but I was like, I run from camp <laughs> and I run day and night and end up in Kenya or something like that. Very hard English, but it was from his heart and he knew, you know, this is the story. And if it's God's will, then I'm going to go to America from the story that I share. Mm-hmm. And so the names are then posted in the church. And so he goes up there and sees his name, Joseph Lopez Lamong. Yeah, and he keeps going back and checking because he's like, wait, is this really true? And one of the UN workers is like, hey, once you see your name, kid, you can, you can go. Your name's not going to change. And so, so Lopez cool. is accepted into the refugee program and all of his uh, brothers he was living with in the camp were super excited and happy for him. Um, and when the day came for him to leave the camp, it was a sad goodbye, but at the same time, he was very excited and he was going to work in America to help his brothers out and eventually help his brothers come to America. He's 16 years old and at this camp, he's taking on responsibilities, he's taking on more of, I guess, what he called men responsibilities. And so he was he was running things, he was getting things done, and he thought that would translate to his opportunity in America where he'd go and get a job, he'd work really hard, um, and then hopefully help his brothers out. And these boys had thought of America as like a holy land. They had seen, um, they'd worked with white UN workers and attended courses from white UN workers and they had always thought that America must be like a step below heaven. He boards a plane and it's his first time boarding a plane and he travels to Nairobi, Kenya, which would be a, a, what was it, an embassy where he would be processed into the refugee program and he would have to go through a long uh, bureaucratic process to get him like officially admitted into the United States. He said he had several interviews and he was nervous for a lot of them. But then finally, one of the workers was like, dude, you don't have to worry. You're already going to America. 
this is just helping us place you basically. And so he kind of relaxed after that. And then he waited and waited and waited to get sent to America. A lot of his brothers were being sent and he was like, what in the world is going on? Why am I not going to America? Why am I staying here? Some of the boys were old enough to go on their own and live and be set up in their own apartment with groups of other boys, but others who were younger were required to be adopted. And and Lopez, being 16 years old, was one of the boys that would have been required to uh, be adopted by a foster family in America. And so the foster family that would eventually adopt him had some hoops that they had to jump through on this side as well uh, to make sure everything was squared away. And then eventually Lopez gets to see his name on a list again, that he is ready to fly out to America. His name again appears as Joseph Lopez Lomong. Uh, Everybody had essentially been calling him Lopez. Um, But as he boards his next flight, he knows that America is far away. And so as he's flying, they finally touch down and he's so excited to finally be in America. And then the pilot comes over the intercom and says, welcome to Cairo first, Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, he's still, I knew Cairo wasn't like, in America. Yeah, he knew he knew Cairo wasn't in America. And was like, I'm still in Africa. Oh, okay. And so he's like, well, it can't be too much further. His next flight takes him to Beijing. So he's like going in the complete, he's like going to so much flying. That would suck so bad. <laughs> so, what was did he mention anything about his total travel time? I don't remember. I don't remember anything about the total. So travel he's flying time. I looked to, it up, and it's like twenty-one hours of flight or something. Yeah, so he has to fly from Cairo to Beijing, and then Beijing, he starts to get up, and the flight attendant's like, "No, no, no, wait, you're not ready to get off, get off yet. Like you still have more travel to go." And so they leave from Beijing to New York. So like, this is taking forever, and. Flight attendants keep coming by with food and he's getting really hungry, but he keeps refusing the food. He's like, no, no, thank you. Not knowing that the food was three was free. He didn't want to accumulate any debts on his trip to America. He didn't want to touch down in America with debt. Like he is starving at this point. And a flight attendant after several times is really concerned. He's like, no, like, please eat this. He's like, I don't have any money. I can't buy this food. She's like, no, it's free. And that was the one word that he, one of the words that he knew in English. He's like, oh, free. And it was more food than would have been able to feed the 10 brothers that he was living with in Kakuma. And he was shocked as he was seeing other members on the flight not eating the food and like throwing some of the food away. And so it's the first time that he's tried butter. And he just opens up the butterfoil and eats it. <laughs> he's like, ew, this is disgusting. And then he eats a salad and he's like, ew, this leafy green stuff is disgusting. <laughs> he's like, man, I can get this in Africa. <laughs> yeah. And it was only after he ate the butter that a lady he was sitting next to showed him like how he should have eaten it on this roll. After a long, huge, giant, horrible flight, they land in New York. His foster parents that adopted him were from Syracuse, New York. And the cool and, thing is they were waiting for him with a sign that said, welcome home, Joseph. And he was like, that was one of the coolest things, like to see that and look forward to that and being like, oh, I'm home like that is so exciting. 
Yeah. And he was kind of quiet and awkward and shy and, and not knowing English very well. And of course, like in shock, like looking at this modern airport with all these electronics everywhere. And, and um, like, it was definitely a major culture shock for him. He meets his parents for the first time and his, his uh, boss or dad asks him if he has any luggage and Lopez said yes. And they waited in front of the luggage claim for several minutes and like asking him, is this one yours? Is this one yours? No, no, no. His parents didn't realize this at the time, but he would say yes to everything because he knew that that was the one word he could say and not anger anybody. And then his dad looks at the ticket and sees that he has no luggage. And yeah, is he's like, like, I'll get the car. <laughs> yeah, I'll get the car. So as they're driving home, they ask him, hey, Lopez, are you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. And they stop by a McDonald's on the way home. He walks into the restaurant and he is amazed. He's like, whoa, this place is so nice. This must be the nicest restaurant in America. Look at all of these different food like, choices. It's a McDonald's. And he's like, this must be the nicest restaurant in America. Little did he know he was right. <laughs> he was this is where nice. our McDonald's sponsorship would go in. <laughs> so McDonald's, McDonald's if you're so listening. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. oh, yeah, that's right. He gets a bicycle, all of his own. It's his own to use. And only the richest people in Kenya had bicycles. So he that just blew his mind that he had one of his own. He also originally thought that he would be sleeping in the shed. He didn't know how to use the light switch. So he slept with the light on every night because he didn't know that you could turn the light off in his room. And so eventually his dad buys him a lamp and is like, hey, you might like this a little bit better. And so he plugs the lamp and turns it on and turns off the light. And Lopez is like, aha that's how you turn that stupid <laughs> oh, thing off that's how you use that thing he's like i don't know how nerd can sleep with the light shining in her eyes like that all the time yeah, so he slept and with like, the covers up over his head yeah and using the shower like it would only like the water was only like freezing cold because you know how to turn the temperature and so one day he goes down to the stove and is boiling water in a pot and his dad's like <laughs> what are you doing he's like i need this for the shower he's like no, you don't know. You don't like, I'll show you how to use it. And he's like, no, it's okay. I'll use this. And he's like, no, let me show you how to use this. So he shows him how to turn the knob in the shower. And he's like, oh my gosh. And he's like, wow, I'm never taking another freezing cold shower again. So then he turns the knob all the way the other way and is like scalding himself and dancing around in the shower. And then what did you say? It, t- it takes him like, like a week to finally find the right temperature. Yeah, and he said that once he found the right temperature, he never adjusted the knob from that spot until, like, he never adjusted it, and he left, like, for college a few years later, but never (laughs) moved it from that spot. It was also weird for him to use an indoor bathroom, because he's like, in Africa, we would never put a bathroom in the house. Like, we would never defile a house, especially one as nice as this, by putting a bathroom inside. And so he wanted to go outside in the yard, but his mom was like, no, only the dog is allowed to go in the backyard. <laughs> he said that sometimes the dog imagine? understood him best. <laughs> yeah. Imagine you all of a sudden you, like, look out your, your back window and some kid's, like, using the bathroom in the, the backyard, and you're like, what are you doing? Straight up, I can imagine. Yeah, he's like the dog. The dog understood me the best. Like him and I were on the same wavelength from the start. So I I had a hard time 
figuring out how wealthy or yeah, how wealthy his adopted parents were. It sounds like they were pretty wealthy because they lived near a lake and they had stuff like jet skis. Talking about the culture shock, like imagine (laughs) coming from a shed (laughs) and you roll into a neighborhood where there's cars everywhere. The houses are nice. I mean, even I would think the houses are nice. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Syracuse, New York is nice. Yeah. One of the other things that he mentioned was that it was like the smoothest street he'd ever (laughs) seen in his life. It's hard to just imagine like the shock that he was in. Like I don't have, I'm not in that bad of a circumstance and I still think like houses are nice. Things are nice and stuff like that. So like just to imagine coming from a really poor area and then going in, into that rich environment you're like oh like these guys have a lot of cars i thought i was gonna live in the shed (laughs) and he was like there someone made a mistake i don't belong here like eventually these people are gonna find me out and i'm gonna be sent to live somewhere else like this place is way too nice for me to live and he just kept thinking that over and over again and he was literally scared about it. He was like, man, I'm going to have to like go somewhere else and not enjoy this wonderful place. Yeah. So one morning his dad asked him, Lopez, uh, what would you like to do today? He's like, I want to run. He's like, okay, uh, how far do you want to run? 30 kilometers. And his parents look at each other like, I don't know how, that is, how long that is. And his wife's like, well, why don't you call the cross-country coach? Because he'll know. So he calls his buddy, Jim Pacha, the cross-country coach, and the cross-country coach is like, I'll be right over. <laughs> <laughs> and his dad looks at his mom. He's like, that's 18 miles. He's like, are you sure, Lopez, that you want to run 30 kilometers? Yes, 30 kilometers. So his dad gives him a pair of running shoes to run in. And he's like, well, I don't know if this route will be 30 kilometers, but like it's close enough. Here's some running shoes you can run in because you can't run in the streets and bare feet. So it was first time wearing running shoes and he takes off running. He's like, man, these shoes really suck. (laughs) (laughs) These are so uncomfortable and they make me so slow. But luckily he did realize that they were going to end up being good for him. He was running on the blacktop, the black pavement, and he could feel the heat from the pavement, even through his shoes. And so he did mention that he knew that, that, his feet would be burned if he wasn't wearing them. So he's like, well, I guess the shoes it is. So he runs to the dam, right? He goes to a dam. He yeah, turns a back. a dam or something. Yeah. And so he turns back. Um, and as he's coming back to his house, the uh, cross country coat shows up. <laughs> and he's like, hey, Lopez. And this, Lopez is like, uh, what is this guy doing? <laughs> and yeah. the cross country coach is like, Hey, like you should come do cross country. And Lopez is like, well, it's time to kick it into another gear. And all of a sudden he's like <laughs> blows past him. <laughs> he's like, yeah. see ya. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lopez was saying his English wasn't that great at the time. And the cross country coach said, wow. And Lopez mentioned that the coach was breathing pretty heavy. And he was like, wow, you're, you're running pretty fast. And Lopez misunderstood that to mean you're not going very fast or you're not going fast enough. And so he's like, I'll show you. And so he takes off yeah. like, and sprints the rest of the way home. He's like, my name is Lopepe, which means fast and running slow is something I do not do. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. He smokes the coach and... Um, 
the coach starts recruiting him really hard and is trying to convince him to run cross country. He's like, no, but I like, I really like soccer. I want to play soccer. And the coach returns with a uh, jacket that has his last name on it, Lamong. And he was like, whoa, like if you have your name on the back of a jacket, you have arrived. <laughs> you have made it. You are at the top of your game. Yeah. So he was like, I will run one race for you for this jacket. He's like, no, you have to run the entire season. Uh, two races. No, Lopez, you have to run the entire season for this jacket. And guess what? If you run for me for every season, sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school, I'll give you a new one each year. And yep. then he said, oh, I could just picture <laughs> hanging those up in my closet, three of them at the end of my high school years. I'm in. Yeah. His first cross-country race, there's a golf cart that's pacing them. And he's like racing the golf cart and the golf cart keeps taking shortcuts and he's getting like so mad that the golf cart keeps taking shortcuts and he's just sprinting to catch up with this. And um, it ends up costing him the race because he burns out at the end of the race and two other runners pass him. He was so mad. He's like, I could have won the race. I could have finished first if the golf cart hadn't taken so many shortcuts. <laughs> and his coach is like, no, Lopez, you don't have to race the golf cart. You just have to race the other competitors. Ugh, now you tell me. <laughs> so his coach is like, just stick with the other racers. And then in the last mile, you can run as fast as you want. And so he start in his next race, he starts running and he's talking to the other competitors. Hi guys, I'm Lopez. How are you today? <laughs> <laughs> I really like to run. Mid race. I really like to run. Like that would make me so, cause it, like listeners, we, me, Hayden, and Skyler all ran cross country in high school. We were all teammates in high school. Like that would piss me off so bad if I had another competitor just mid race. Hey, what's your name? I'm Lopez. I like to run. <laughs> the other thing was he was saying that again, his English wasn't very good. And so, but he was a talker. And so he kept always trying to talk to his competitors in that race which I just find awesome. Like, that's so funny. Didn't, so what, he gets to the, the mile and he's like, all right, I got to run now. <laughs> takes off. See you like, guys right. at the finish line. Bye-bye now. I got to go now. See you guys later. <laughs> and like takes off and wins the race. Um, so funny. And so he returns like home, like his parents drive him home. They're like super proud of him. And one of his neighbors is outside and his his dad's talking to his neighbors he's like yeah lopez won a cross-country race today but he filled a 400 and his neighbor was like whoa nice medal like you can run in the olympics someday and lopez is like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is my goal now but yes i will run in the olympics someday he wants so, to be like mike yeah, he was really cool. And so in his high school career, he ran and developed some friendships with some of his teammates. Um, one of his, And he told his teammates that he was going to run in the Olympics. And it would just be so cool to just know that one day you're going to be running in the Olympics, which I feel like that's how he was. It wasn't really ever a question or anything. Like, it was a mm -hmm. goal, but he just knew he was going to make it. And so, I, too, had a similar goal. <laughs> And then I got fat. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Skyler. <clears throat> and then I just thought it was cool that he kept telling his friend that. And his friend was like, you know what? You're right. And I'm going to come watch you when you run in the Olympics. And he made him a promise that he would come and watch. 
And so this is fall of his first year of school, and he's still trying to get used to um, school. And his mom fought to get him into the sophomore grade, even though he didn't know English very well. He's like, mentally, I should have belonged in kindergarten, but I was 16, and my mom fought to um, to get me in sophomore classes. So he was That's, really struggling. Go ahead. I just wanted to add that. That's, I think, amazing about his Miss Rogers who adopted him. Like, she fought for him every chance she had um, and really, really pushed him um, academically. And I think that helped transition into his running career, which we'll talk about a little bit later. You're going to, like, you'll study hard and you'll pass these classes. Like, you can do it, Lopez. And she really uh, encouraged him and, and did all that she could to make sure that he had the resources that he needed to succeed in the classroom. His parents fighting for him and coming to every single one of his races really helped him recognize that his parents really, really did care about him. He said that the other parents wouldn't come to every race, and so he knew that his parents really loved him because they were doing things that what he would consider you know, ordinary uh, family situations, it wasn't happening there. His dad really fought to get him a driver's permit, and the rules were different for foster children. Technically, he was a foster child. Um, the rules were different for foster children in New York, and the dad had some awesome like words for the people that kept telling him no, and those were the rules. He said that he would like file an injunction against them, and he said, you're telling these kids that they're home, and that this is their home now, but you're treating them terribly and you're treating them differently and that's not okay. And so I just thought that was awesome. And that's how that was one of the experiences he said that led him to really believe that his dad really did love him and care for him. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And like around this time, he really started to warm up to his parents and opened up more. And, you know, he didn't say yes to everything anymore. Actually, there was a story of him and his mom going shopping and buying him clothes and she kept asking him, hey, do you like this shirt? Do you like these pants? And like, yes. She held up this like really ugly, I don't know if it was a shirt. I think it was a shirt. She held this really ugly shirt. And she said, do you like this? Yes. She's like, no, you don't. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Lopez, you can tell me no, like if you don't like something. And so. <laughs> what a like, relief. Like she helped him kind of break that habit. But um, so let's get back to him in high school. And so he's in high school, still struggling with English. And his history teacher wanted to help him and asked him, Lopez, what, what interests you? He said running really interested him. So she gave him a book about Jesse Owens, which we'll probably do an episode on Jesse Owens at some point. But Jesse Owens was black like him, and he was also a runner, an Olympian, and competed in the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games under the Nazi regime, where the Olympics were supposed to be a sign of German racial superiority under Adolf Hitler. And it was at those Olympics that Jesse Owens won four Olympic gold medals and really shattered that ideology. And so he was really inspired by that, and that helped reinforce his desire to go compete in the Olympics. So uh, a couple of months later, he's in school and he goes to his class just like every other day. Class gets out, he goes to the hall and he starts to feel that there's something different going on. And as he's looking at his classmates, he can see that people are worrying, people are sad, and he's, he's a little confused about what's going on. 
And so he goes to his locker. His friend kind of comes up to him and says, it's not good. He asks his friend, what's going on? And his friend says, well, there's smoke and fire coming from one of the World Trade Center towers. And Lopez, being who he is, doesn't really know the significance of that. And so he, he's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's like a little, that's worrisome. And so they go to the next class and then they hear a bell. And he's like, oh, the bell shouldn't be going right now. And all of a sudden the bell continues to to be pressed and repeated. And he's like, oh, is this a fire drill? And one of his classmates says, no, like it's not, it's not a fire drill. Like this is something else. Uh, and then his principal comes on and says, all right, guys, like go home. You need to go home. Um, Cause now there's a, an airplane that just flew into the other world trade center tower. And so he, he remembers the feeling of, of sadness and of love for the country that everybody had at that, at that time. And he goes home and his parents are on the TV and he sees President Bush and he sees him give his address of what happens and he sees how he loves the country. Um, and that kind of fuels him to once, once again reach his Olympic goal. And he says, you know what? I really want to, to run for this country. I want to show the love that I have for this country that has done so much for me. He expressed that it was kind of a new feeling for him. He'd never heard of or seen any pride in country. But the day following 9-11, he said he went and saw a shirt with an American flag on it. And he was like, ooh, got to buy that. And then he said, everybody bought that shirt. And so it was an interesting thing for him to recognize that everybody had kind of love and pride of country at that time. Yeah, because being from Sudan, he was like nobody was proud to be from Sudan. He's like, I was proud to be a part of my, my family's farm, but nobody was proud to be from Sudan. And it was like, he said that um, after 9-11, he is when he became a true American. And so following 9-11 as well, they shut down the refugee program that brought Lopez to America. Um, and after hearing that, he was deeply saddened because all of his brothers that were waiting to come to America weren't going to have the opportunity to come to America as well like him. And so his parents realizing that Lopez was, was kind of alone um, and was sad, reached out and were able to adopt two additional lost boys um, and brought them there to, to live with Lopez and, and be his brothers. He has to take some summer classes throughout his high school career because he failed some classes and and uh, eventually had a very successful cross-country career. He got the attention of a lot of recruiters across the country for track and field and cross-country, but he didn't really have a very good GPA, so he wasn't going to be able to go any of the big schools. He would have to go to one of the junior colleges before he could go to a larger school. One of the big things is he wanted to have a Division One scholarship, and because of his grades, he wasn't going to be able to do that. So his focus this freshman year was actually going to be on school. And so as he was going around and visiting colleges, him and his brother didn't even mention that they had run cross country. Uh, They just wanted to, they were really funny. They were really tired of the Syracuse, New York winters. They said they just wanted to go to school somewhere warm. And so in order to find the school, they just started driving south and it was like drove through Pennsylvania nope, not the right place. And they kept going further south. 
And I think they ended up stopping at a junior college in Maryland. And uh, Lopez was like, oh, this is just right. It's not too big, not too small. Like, this is where I want to go to school. I think it was Norfolk State, and he liked it because the student body was largely black. And I can't remember, did he enroll at Norfolk State for a semester? Yeah, so he started going to school at Norfolk State. Then they did have a cross-country team, and he ended up meeting, and I believe you ran with a few times, the their fastest runner, the captain of the cross-country team. And eventually, of course, they talk about, you know, Lopez wants to go to the Olympics. The coach finds out that, you know, the New York individual state champion is going to school at his school and is not running. And so he starts trying really hard to recruit him. But he said it was kind of interesting. This guy that was the best on the team there wasn't trying to recruit him, but he kept telling him he needed to go run at Northern Arizona University. He had been to the university and had trained over there and said, look, if you want to go to the Olympics, this is what you need to do. And Lopez was like, no, no, me and you, like, we can make it. We can, we can train here and we can go. And the guy was like, Mm-mm, that's not how this is going to work. Like, you are way too talented. Uh, you need to go somewhere where your skills are really going to pay off for you so you can get to the Olympics. Yeah, which is pretty cool leadership of him to be like, no, like, don't go to school here. There's something better for you. And NAU is a pretty big track and cross-country powerhouse, but they are a Division II school. They're a smaller school. So he was able to um, get recruited there, and he would have been eligible to compete there, even with his lower testing scores. And he didn't know much about Arizona other than that Arizona was warm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. So... He talks his parents into letting him transfer, and his mom's like, Lopez, I don't really, like, he he was hesitant to tell his mom because they had found Norfolk State together, and she was like, Lopez, I don't really care where you go to college as long as you get your degree. He didn't quite get a scholarship right away at NAU. It was something that he would have had to work for for a semester before he could enroll, so there was not really a guarantee, but he was like, no, like, if this is the path I need to take, then I'll do it, and I'll make it work. He finds a degree that that really fits him, um, and it's restaurant and hotel management. And what he wanted to do with that is actually return back to South Sudan and open up a hotel um, and maybe a restaurant and kind of bring bring people to South Sudan, bring money back to South Sudan so that he could change the lives of his family and the people that lived there. He continues to train, he continues to race, and he is developing quite a successful career as a, as a runner at NAU. Leading up into one of his cross-country seasons, at the time he didn't know it was going to be his last, but their team was looking really good. They were the favorites to win the conference that they were in, which back then was a big deal for Northern Arizona University. Just kind of a side note, they're the first a school to have a three-peat on the men's cross-country team for the national championship. And so that's more recent. That's like 2016 to 2018. But to consistently be so good is really something. And so they were the favorite in the conference, and they knew that they had a goal of winning the national championship, which was a really big goal. And Lopez wanted to be the individual champion. 
And so the race was going to be held in Indiana and they ended up taking fourth place over there as a team. And Lopez ended up third place overall. So his college was going really well for him. He was starting to perform really well and develop more into the runner he would need to be to make it to the Olympics. While he was at NAU, a friend that had visited Kenya on a humanitarian mission had somehow found his mother. And HBO, after he, after his fame started to grow a little bit from his collegiate athletics, wanted to do a special on him and paid for him to return to Kimotong. His family had moved to Kenya to escape the Civil War. One of his friends living in Kenya had given Lopez his mother's phone number, and he was able to hear his mom's voice for the first time, and it was something like 16 years. And at first, she didn't recognize it. She was like, this isn't my boy, because she still thought that he was a young child. <laughs> so after some convincing, he was like, no, mom, it's it's me. It's it's my voice. I'm Lo here. Pepe. Yeah, Lo Pepe. And so with the help of HBO, they set up a trip for him to go back to Kenya um, and finally see his mom and see his family. And so while he's there, he spends some time there and sees his mom, his dad comes up, uh, meets his brothers, meets his uh, sister. He then goes and visits the village and sees some of their practices. And a lot of what he saw really kind of pushed him a little bit harder to want to benefit his homeland. And so he had people coming up to him asking for medicine for their sick children he had a translator there because he had almost completely forgotten his native tongue, Buya. And so the translator said that this lady came up and was saying medicine, medicine. And he explained to, the translator explained to Lopez that the child had malaria and was asking for medicine because she hoped he had some because he came from America. And she knew that, you know, she'd heard in America they have medicine for things like this. And he said it broke his heart that he had to tell these people that he couldn't help them. He didn't have medicine with him and he couldn't heal the children. But he knew that there were medicines and some of them were extremely basic medicines that could be saving lives. And so that was a real drive for him to do something, anything to help his people in South Sudan. Yeah, it was frustrating because the child did die shortly after and He's like, man, like these are like such basic things that could help out Sudan so much. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is he's visiting his hometown. They had made a grave for him and they just filled it with the toys that he had as a child. And as he was there, they dug up his grave and they had a celebration for him for bringing him back from the dead. And his father gave a speech that, you know, my Lopez is back and some of your boys that were taken may very well be alive too and not to lose hope. Also with that celebration, they had a couple of rituals that they did for Lopez because he died and he came back. Some of the priests in his in the town slaughtered a a cow and he was a goat or a sheep. They started with a goat. The they started with the goat, yeah, and then at the funeral they did the cow and they cut its chest open all the way to its stomach and then got the guts and spread it on his chest and his legs and his arms in this particular instant to bring him blessings. And he was like, man, I need to get out of this. 
This is like my American stomach was turning. <laughs> yeah, this smells. This is disgusting. I can't believe people like can stand this. In order to have the full effect, he needed to keep it on until sundown. And so he talked about how he kind of fought it. And then eventually he was like, you know what? Like, this is awesome. I'm glad I'm back here. You know, let's, let's do what they, they say. Let's, let's do the rituals. Lopez was such a good person to just everybody. So I think that was a part of it is he really wanted to one recognize that, you know, this was his people and it was important to them. So it was important to him. Lopez was just a fantastic person overall. Now, Lopez ends up returning home. He, the whole time, was stressed about catching his flight, which he says over there, he actually talks about the Swahili phrase, Hakuna Matata, which, again, means no worries. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that phrase before or not. The Lion kind of popular. <laughs> and so, anyway, he talks about how Hakuna Matata just really means, like, there really are no worries. Time doesn't exist. If it doesn't get done today, it'll get done tomorrow. And so really the concept of I need to go and catch a flight didn't exist. And so he's like, I have to go. And they just really didn't understand. So he said that was pretty hard. But he's able to return to the United States. He catches his flight and ends up deciding to go pro and train for the Olympics exclusively. So he finishes up his collegiate career as an athlete, still needs to graduate, and he calls his his mom in New York and tells her, I'm going pro. I can make money doing this. I can support my family back in Africa. And the coolest thing about all of that is his mom from Syracuse, New York, says, Lopez, this doesn't have to be about the money. Like, from the very beginning they had been sending money over to his family in Africa as soon as they found out that they were alive. And so she said, if you're just doing it for the money, like don't worry about that. That's something that we can take care of. And he was like, no, like you've helped me enough. Like it's my turn to help and going pro, give me the resources to do that. And he promised her that he'd still get his degree. And so he takes 22 credit hours in the off season to finish his degree, and it will take him three years to graduate. As a pro athlete, he begins to train for the Olympic Games in 2008 that were upcoming. Beijing, he's heading back. He's going back to Beijing. <laughs> Where he spent one second. <laughs> yeah. But so for the next six months, he trains for the Olympics in college. He ran the 1500 and the 800. For those of you who don't know, those are brutal races. It's You're basically sprinting, but for a longer period of time. So tell me which races aren't brutal, Skyler. Anything the 400 under the 400. 400 <laughs> no, meter 400 hurdles. still sucks. Anything. <laughs> the 100 and the 200 are nothing. So basically, chase, I've heard the steeplechase is pretty easy. <laughs> Anything 400 meters and up sucks. Yeah. <laughs> This is true. But anyway, so he uh, runs the 800, he does the 1500. And what he focuses on is the 1500. He says, you know, if I have a chance to go to the Olympics, it's going to be in the 1500 meter race. And so the he- 1500 meter jog. A few things. So he has, there are certain races he has to compete in in order to compete at the Olympic trials. 
and he races the 800 and the 1500 there and qualifies for the trials for both. So he's not in the Olympics yet, but he is able to compete in Eugene for the trials. And it's there that he meets Michael Johnson, the Olympian that he had watched on the black and white TV screen outside of the Kakuma refugee camp. And I was like blown away by that. I was like, Michael, like you were the reason why I started running. And Michael's all like, oh yeah, I've heard your story and, and gave him some words of encouragement. And I thought that was really cool. And then Michael was like, no way. I know your story. You started running because of a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That didn't actually happen. But Michael did happen. know his story and he had been following his collegiate career, which is so cool. Especially when you consider Michael Johnson was running, you know, sprints 400 meters, but really to be following somebody that was a cross country athlete and then was running track as well. And then kind of developed into more of a track athlete at the time. I thought that was really cool. So let's move on to the Olympic trials and Hayden, do you want to talk about the trials and the 800? Absolutely. Well, first bring up how he pulls his hamstring. Don't worry. I'll talk about that. Don't yeah, you worry, Skylar. I've got I, so much to talk about. You're going to just kick back and listen as I seduce your ears <laughs> with talk of the 800 meters. And you will. Uh, you will. Oh, dude. That's a good time. Welcome to the soft sounds of the 800 meter discussion. Leading up to the Olympic trials, he had been running several races and felt that he really belonged because he was winning some of them. And these are professional races. And so he's really excited about that. He knows that he's definitely capable of competing in the Olympics. So he's training really hard and he's running some strides. And so he's running, you know, pretty quick to just kind of get that pace um, and get an idea of how fast he needs to go. And all of a sudden he feels a pop in the back of his leg. And so he stops and uh, kind of hobbles a little bit. And then he tries to run again and he says, hmm, well, I can't. And so he had never not been able to run except for at one other point in his life. And it had when he had been running for three days straight as like a six-year-old. And so he said that he was so exhausted, he couldn't hardly stand after that. And at this point, he can't run anymore. And he had never had an injury through his high school or college careers. His coach was just like, oh, I can't believe it. They were a couple weeks out from the Olympic trials, and normally it takes a fair bit longer to fully recover from a pulled hamstring. But he said he got some of the best physical therapists to help him out and help him recover from that. And so he had started running hills because it was easier on his hamstring to run up a hill. And then he would have to kind of, you know, hobble down it and then run back up it. And that's how he stayed in shape. And so he gets to the Olympic trials and he tells his coach, hey, I've got a great idea. I'm going to run the 800 because I qualified for it and it'll loosen up my leg and it'll make me feel more confident in the 1500. His, no! coach, is like, <laughs> his coach says, boo, terrible idea. Uh, but if you say so, go ahead. And so he ends up, okay, great. I'm just going to run one 800 just to kind of loosen up, get, make sure I'm feeling good. And then he wins it. And so he won his heat. He moves on to the semifinals, wins that one, moves on to the finals. And his coach is like, no, 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 no. The 1500 is your best chance. And he's like, dude, I can make it. And so he decides to run the 800 meter final. So this is his third race in as many days. He's in the 800 meter final 
and he's killing it. And then in the kick, he just doesn't have enough gas. He's at the end leaning for third and he has a chance and he says he can feel a tug on the back of his jersey. So somebody had reached out and caught themselves on him and it made him not qualify. For the this Olympics. sucks so bad. For you people that have never ran a race, that is literally the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Like Totally. And you're already like so irritable as it is from pushing yourself into so much exhaustion i would lose my freaking mind i never i never knew a happy 800 meter runner (laughs) there were some times where i just lost it in races and that would have like set me completely off and that's the difference between you and lopez lopez (laughs) turns to the guy after the guy immediately apologizes after the finish line he's like i'm so sorry and lopez says it's okay these things happen. And he probably said it just like that. You know, the words were kind, but I imagine the tone was just like, you fool, what have you done? Made that sound like a mob boss, like accidents will happen. (laughs) And he's like, watch out for your leg. (laughs) Bust your kneecaps. And so anyway, he had just run three races, 800 meters, running as hard and as fast as he can. And now the real attempt at qualifying for the Olympics begins. So he's got three more races to run. So he's running six races in the span of seven days because he's got to qualify for the 1500 meter semifinals and then qualify for the finals and compete in them and try to qualify for the Olympics. I want to jump in. I can't remember if it was this race or a previous race, but someone had asked him, if he had felt pressure about the big race coming up. And he's like, pressure, no. Pressure was escaping from a prison camp at six years old and running for three days a night in the African desert. And pressure was fighting for food in a garbage heap on Tuesdays. And pressure was trying to feed a uh, group of 10 boys off of a single chicken at Christmas. And pressure was writing an essay in a language that you didn't even speak to try and make it to the United States. He's like, when I was six years old, I ran for my life, but today I run for pure, absolute joy. And the joy was about to begin. (laughs) (laughs) So he's lined up on that 1500 meter start line. And guess what? He makes it through the quarterfinals. He makes it through the semifinals. <laughs> He's now warming up for the regular finals. And he tweaks his ankle. He's uh. running on uneven ground preparing for his race. They had the first call for the 1500 meter and he tweaks his ankle in a hole in the grass that he doesn't see. And so he kind of walks over away from his coach because he knows that if his coach sees he's going to flip out and so he hobbles over there and he sees the trainer that had helped him with his hamstring injury and he's like excuse me i need a quick favor look at my ankle and so he's working on his ankle and twisting it all sorts of weird ways doing you know that voodoo magic and he is it's so bad and his coach comes over and is like hey what happened And the trainer's like, he twisted his ankle. And Lopez is like, oh, come on, man. You can't keep a secret. (laughs) 
Just kidding. He doesn't say that. He's like, and the coach lost it, like swearing, just like like Lopez thought. His coach lost it, and he's like, "Why does this keep happening to me?" And it's like, "What do you mean, you? (laughs) Lopez is the one that's injured. Lopez is the one going to the Olympics. Lopez is the one that has everybody saying, oh, he injured himself. He shouldn't have run that many races in that many days.'" He's the one that's got everybody on his back and the coach is upset. But of course he had good reason. I just like to poke fun. And so <laughs> Lopez is like, no, it'll be okay. And so he says that he says a prayer and he says that there is no way that God took him this far to let him twist an ankle and ruin his chance. And so he starts walking around, starts jogging around and he says, nope, my ankle's fine. And so he credits the miraculous healing of his ankle to God and to that prayer and to the fact that God had a bigger plan for his life. So what happens? Dude gets up to the line running for pure joy. And that joy escalates through lap one. (laughs) Lap two, he makes sure that he stays in position. Lap three, he gets into striking distance. And lap four, the final lap. He says that one, you just leave it up to God anyway and leave it all on the field next to the track get the stuff off the track but anyway he's kicking he's kicking he's getting past he's moving into fourth position and he says at 87 meters very specific i like that at 87 meters something comes over him and he just gets a surge of energy and just kicks like his life depends on it even though it's all for joy and not for his life and he takes third place and qualifies for the Olympics. On a messed up ankle. Behind Bernard Lagat. And oh, we like what him. was the other guy's name? I don't know. The Black Cactus. Man. <laughs> Who's no, the Black was... Cactus? Man, no, that's Bernard. Manzano. 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 Yeah, it's, man, it's, it's a Z. Oh, he's got Z in his last name. Anyway, they had all run A standards. There were, I think, five or six that had run qualifying times. And so in order to qualify for the Olympics as an American, you have to run a qualifying time, which is called an A standard. And you also have to be top three in the Olympic trials. And so you don't have to run a certain time in the Olympic trials unless you haven't run that time already, um, as long as you take uh, third or better. So pretty amazing stuff. Busted ankle, pulled hamstring, and he pulls it off. Going to the Olympics, Beijing. Yep. Lopez Lemong is out there breaking ankles to this day. <laughs> so he goes to Beijing with with all the athletes to compete, and um, they're all standing together. All the U.S. Olympians from all the sports, and George Bush is George Bush in the house. <laughs> <laughs> George Bush George is in Bush the was house. out of the house and um, out of the Wait, White which, House. Out of the White House. <laughs> which Bush? Which one do you think? The little one. W. <laughs> Whichever one is the younger one. It's w. So George the Bush one is in the house. The H and- He's like asking around, "Hey, where's Lopez? Where's Lopez?" And and um, Lopez is like, "Wait, that's George Bush, the president, asking for me." He's like, don't you mean where's Kobe Bryant? Don't you mean where's LeBron James? Don't you mean where's Michael Phelps? Yeah, and he's like, there are athletes here like Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Michael Phelps who would go on to win eight gold medals and George Bush is asking for me. I'm just a lost boy that nobody cares about. 
And so he was able to meet George Bush and like that was a pretty cool moment for him thinking back to 9-11, the day after 9-11, seeing George Bush stand over the burning rubble of New York and giving a speech to the rescue workers there and being hugely inspired by that moment. Before the before the actual games begin, the Olympians have to elect a flag bearer for the Olympic team, which is considered one of the highest honors of the Olympic team. And normally this would go through several rounds of, of ballots and each team would elect an individual from their team to represent the United States as the flag bearer. But it only went a couple of rounds because Lopez was, you know, one of the favorites to, to, to have this honor. And he met again with George Bush and he was like, hey, Lopez, when you carry that flag out, make sure it doesn't touch the ground, buddy. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. It was like, that was like, Good so, plan, was like, that is, was so cool. At the time, war was still kind of going on in Sudan. And there was some political turmoil related to China kind of egging some stuff on. And so the, a lot of the press wanted to kind of poke at Lopez to get him say some, to say something political. Is this a political movement? And Lopez says, I am so happy to be here. I'm so proud to be an American. He says he doesn't take the bait and has a press conference, doesn't take the bait during the press conference, but just tells a story and tells how happy he is to be an American and how, you know, what this pride of country means for him. And so gives this awesome press conference and then, you know, is leaving and is talking to somebody and he's like, Hey, I need to go train. And he's like, okay, yeah, great. I totally understand. The head of the Olympic committee is like, Oh wait, don't go train yet. You got one more thing we want you to do. And it was the basketball coach that had come up and was talking to the head of the Olympic committee saying, Hey, we want him to come and give a speech to the basketball team. And so he said, go in there, do exactly what you did at the press conference, inspire them. And he was like, oh, you mean go yeah. inspire, you know, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, like all these all pros. And it was Coach K of the of Duke University. How do you pronounce his name, Skyler? It's like Krzyzewski or something like that. Yeah, I think it's K. Yeah, just yeah. Coach K. It's K, but the K is silent. <laughs> yeah, um, just call him Coach. Yeah, it's like this legendary coach, and he's giving a speech to all these legendary players. He's like, hey, this, listen up, guys. Lopez really knows what it is like to be an American. So Lopez shares his story with them. He's like, these were players that like, I used to wear their jersey like, playing hoops in front of my home in Syracuse, New York. Like, So that was really cool. So gives the speech, um, a week passes, and he gets to run his 1,500-meter race, makes it through the first qualifying round, and then the semifinals comes up, and he does not have his best race. And he was super frustrated because the time that he ran in the race to qualify him for the semifinals would have won that heat. And so he's like, I know I can do better than that. And so then he's like, oh, it's cool. I'll just, you know, do better in my next Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Because that's all what we so, think when we run poorly in an Olympics. <laughs> it was like, it was like right after he was like, 
whatever, this isn't going to be my first Olympics. I'm going to run again in 2012 and 2016. It was definitely his first Olympics, but it was definitely not his last. (laughs) Oh, is that what I said? Yeah, Yeah, he said, this won't be my first Olympics. This won't be my, he was like, this won't be my last Olympics. Yeah, and he, again, fantastic runner, and he sure has a lot of things figured out. And when he was in Beijing, his family had a fundraiser over there and so the town had the fundraiser to send his parents from New York to Beijing to watch him race. During the fundraiser, he actually called home and told them that he was nominated as the flag bearer. And so his dad yells out, oh, he's the flag bearer. And so he said they very easily raised enough money to come after that was revealed at the fundraiser. Yeah. And so anyway, it was just so cool. So he had some friends, his future wife came that he'd been dating, his friend that had come up to him that helped him find his mom came up and watched his high school cross country friend, his high school cross country coach. He had touched so many lives and so many people came there to watch him compete in the Olympics. Yeah. So Lopez today, he's still running. He is a professional athlete sponsored by Nike. He lives in the Portland area and and uh, has a fundraiser. Do you know the name of his fundraiser, Hayden Schuyler? It's something Sudan. It's like or, or rather his nonprofit organization. I think it's called For Sudan. Yeah. I think he it's has For another Sudan. organization and then that's the specific, you know, he partnered with another nonprofit and they they started For Sudan or For yeah. South Sudan. Yeah, and he wanted to start his own nonprofit and he was like I have no idea how to do it but something like that has never stopped me before so he founded for South Sudan which helps in a lot of different ways to improve the lives of the people living in South Sudan and so out of everything he talks about in his autobiography his experiences as flag bearer his experiences winning races all of that he finishes and culminates by saying you know what the most important moment in my life has been he goes on to explain that it was that moment when he was graduating with a degree from college because he knew that for him that kind of marked a beginning for sure (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna do it for the story of lopez long and i'm sure there's much to come and i'm sure there are a lot of chapters of his life that are still unwritten. But if you'd like to learn more about Lopez Lamont, you can read his book, Running for My Life. Uh, we highly recommend it. It's a really, really good book. And like a portion of the purchases go to for South Sudan. They do. Yes, they do. Okay, guys, that's our show. And if you liked it, and even if you didn't like it, still subscribe. <laughs> um, Which, how could you not like that story? It's amazing story. Exactly. So we are all available on Apple Podcast and Spotify. And we would sure enjoy a rating of five stars and a review. If you want to keep up with us, follow our Insta at Finest Hours Podcast. And if you don't do social media, send us an email at finesthourspod at gmail.com. That's beautiful, Skylar. Yeah, we want to hear from you. We want to hear who inspires you. And if you have any stories uh, that you'd like to share, then we're all ears. So go ahead and reach out to us on our social media or send us an email. Hakuna Matata, y'all. (laughs) right that's gonna do it for this week's episode we really appreciate you guys giving us a listen and we'll be back with you in a couple weeks with another amazing story kwaheri is swahili for goodbye all right what skyler said
Swahili. Thank <laughs> you.